Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. And yeah, seriously, today is a bit bittersweet. This is our first venue. You know, it's kind of like your first house that you buy. And it's like, oh wow, this is our first house. And it's not too bad a first house, isn't it? It's been really good to us. But at the same time, we are looking forward to what... um, what happens next and we're so excited that um, yeah it's a full house this morning and you can probably see why we need to move uh, practically speaking and that's really really cool Uh, but we get to finish off uh, our time in the sitting rooms this morning by focusing on a very interesting topic I'm a bit OCD and that looks a bit wonky to me does it that's me okay cool and so as I did mention last week when when we came up with this idea to do a series for it, where uh, we literally are simply taking the questions a couple of months ago, and we prepared this series so that we can talk through um, uh, the different questions that people have about our faith, and we knew without a shadow of doubt that at one stage we were going to have to talk about gay marriage and homosexuality, and, and at the same time, even though I was slightly worried, because the thing is that people have very strong views around this topic, don't they? And um, it, it feels like anyone who says something that is not in alignment with what other people think uh, gets shot down pretty quickly. So uh, there is that slight sense of trepidation that I embark on this message this morning, but at the same time, I believe that it's important for us as Christians to know how to respond correctly and uh, biblically um, to people uh, who are maybe struggling with this topic or have, have questions around it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, but to first set the scene, as I mentioned uh, last week, last week was a bit of a foundation to what we are talking about today. And we don't have time to unpack it like we did last week. You can podcast it from our website. But I had the eight of my beautiful cookie jar and a monkey. And so you can hear a few people already recognizing this and going, man, that was an amazing message. I thought so too. Probably one of my best. I don't know if I can get back up there again. But anyway, this is representative of our life of sin. And this monkey represents us. And many of us, in fact, all of us were found in our life of sin. And uh, soon after, we find that it doesn't really offer us much. We are trapped in this life of sin. And the, the good thing about God is that He graces us and He loves us so much that His grace removes us from the life of sin. Remember what Paul said. He said that we are now dead to sin. Dead to sin not in that we lose our capacity to sin, but in that we have been removed from sin. If you're remembering that from last week, say amen. Amen. Good, you're following. And so now we have this uh, picture of our freedom in Christ. And our freedom in Christ exists outside of the life of sin. It makes sense, doesn't it? If the life of sin is something that used to enslave us, which is the language that the Bible uses, then when we are removed from the life of sin, we have now found... 
Freedom, exactly. And I love that the Bible describes life in the Spirit as something that is freeing. It has these open spaces. And many people talk about Christianity being all stuck in the mud and, you know, I don't get to do this and it's so restrictive. But the Bible says that, yes, it is restrictive in the sense that you only get the life of freedom when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But once you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are actually removed from your restrictions and placed in wide open spaces. The problem is that all of us love the comforts of our old life of sin. And we always seem to like to turn back to our life of sin and, and, and slowly get ourselves and trap back in the life of sin again. And that's why, and this is what we said, why the reason we have uh, boundaries still in the Christian world, freedom. So why is there still laws? The laws stop us from being entrapped again. That's as simple as it is. The, 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 the restrictions that we find in the Bible are not to hold us and to entrap us, but is actually to keep us in freedom. Following me so far? Yeah. And so we did talk about that towards the end of the message last week, and we spoke about how uh, the, re, the way, one of the key ways that we know that something is harmful to us, something is restrictive to us, something is from a life of sin and holds us back in a life of sin, is that if uh, something is repeated in the New Testament, then we know that it is sin. Following me so far? Now Jesus has come and all of that. He set us free. Amazing, but it's still boundaries. And, and it's repeated in the New Testament so that we know it is sin. So when it comes to homosexuality, there are two key passages in the New Testament. And you can research them yourself. We don't have time to go into both of them today. But um, they are 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 and 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. There we go. So those are the two passages, but today we're only going to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, because there's something that I want to explain to people here. And it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now many people use this passage to say that homosexual people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I say that that is a half reading of what this passage is actually saying because it actually starts off by saying the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if we read the whole Bible, who are the unrighteous? Every person. There's not one person who is righteous, not even one. All of us are unrighteous, and all of us will not inherit the kingdom of God, except for the fact that Jesus has made us righteous. And so he goes on to list things that are involved in the previous life of unrighteousness that all of us live. There's sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greedery, and drunkery, and revilery, and swindlery, and, and all of those things. Many things are so common 
You can say, you can put the word swindle, but maybe it's just lying. All of us have done little things in our lives that would take us and exclude us from inheriting the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, such were some of you. I think he's being nice. He, he probably should have said, such were all of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and now you get to inherit the kingdom of God. Something that we need to make clear is that homosexuality is not more of a sin than anything else. It is something that our culture has latched onto as a big deal, and we do need to be careful about it. And, and yes, homosexuality is a sin. It is repeated in the New Testament, but it is something that many people, uh, it, it, it's put in the category of things that people struggle with. Following me so far, just because you don't practice homosexuality doesn't make you a righteous person. Just because you don't do some things that are sin doesn't make you a righteous person. As we mentioned, what's the only thing that makes you righteous? Accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's as simple as that. But yet the Bible is also clear that homosexuality is involved in a life of sin and is something that us as Christians should avoid. Just as adultery is something of the life of sin, such as lie-telling, anger, frustration, anxiety. All of those are things that the life of sin wishes to entrap us with. But by the grace of God, I'm hoping that all of us are able to grow past it and move into the freedom that we have in Christ. Making sense so far? Now, I've done a lot of research into the whole gay marriage debate, and a part of it is because I had a privilege of walking with a couple of young people in their struggles, and, and, and as I researched this, there's so many things in the Bible um, that people want to argue about, and they will say, no, no, that verse is not actually saying this, or it's not actually really referring to homosexuality, it's referring to this instead. Well, this is the thing. The Bible is clear and consistent through the whole Bible, that marriage is between a man and a woman and sexual relationships are only healthy in the context of a marriage. <coughs> That's the only consistent reading that we can find from the beginning to the end of the Bible. To argue for homosexual marriage is to only argue that maybe the Bible possibly doesn't say homosexuality is a sin. And that's just creative reading. We can all creatively read many things away, but if we look at the consistency of the Bible, uh, sexual relationships are only to be found in the context of a marriage, and a marriage is only to be found between a man and a woman. Now, I did want to just make that clear as a stance that I believe clear reading of the Bible, a good reading of the Bible will bring about. But here this morning, I do want to talk about the sense that Many people would then put forward the argument that why is it that the Bible and why is it that Christians are so restrictive? If a God who wants to stop people from loving one another is the God that you serve, I don't want to serve that God. And I don't know if you heard that kind of argument. I have. I definitely have. It's, it's, all the way, it's, it's there all the time. People are saying, uh, I stand for the right for people to pursue their own happiness and to pursue love. And it sounds great, doesn't it? Who wishes your right to pursue happiness to be taken away? Anyone? Any weirdos in the room? 
<laughs> Did I see your hand? No? Good. We, we are all normal human beings. The pursuit of happiness is something that all of us wish that we have. And many of us have the ability to practice that. But there is something that we need to understand. That our pursuit of happiness is not um, unrestricted. Even for normal people like you, when you go to a candy store and you see that amazing candy and you got no money, your pursuit of happiness might dictate that you steal some candy. And if the pursuit of happiness as a right is the only right, the moral standard by which we live by, there are many things that you would be doing that technically is unlawful. But none of us are arguing laws against stealing. None of us are arguing against laws against murder. You know, we don't do animal sacrifice on the front porch. Why? Because it's unlawful. It is not right. But some people are like, but that makes me happy. And when we set ourselves on a path where our moral standard is dependent on our individual pursuit of happiness, we start ourselves on a very slippery slope. Because you can justify any of your actions by saying, why are you restricting my pursuit of happiness? And that is dangerous. And, and, and it's just gone on so much that now that the gay debate feels like it has been won across the world, it's opened up new debates that frankly scare the crap out of me. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I want you to know that it really scares me that we are giving six-year-old six kids the right to choose their happiness by choosing their genders. When I was six, the only thing that I really wanted to choose was a Lego set. I wasn't trying to choose a gender that would dictate the rest of my life. I didn't need to make any of those big decisions. Why? Because I had adults who had grown up and are supposed to understand morality better than I did as a six-year-old to help me on this journey of life. Our individual pursuit of happiness cannot be dictated uh, by, uh, can, cannot become our moral standard. And, and just so that uh, I, I, I am putting this out there as a bit of shock material, uh, I do understand that this is only affecting a few people, but earlier this year, and this is this year, I think it was in America, there was this news article that came out, um, and this article was, uh, uh, the title was Men Who Live As Dogs. And literally there are these men who uh, are from a certain scene and I don't really want to talk too much about it. I don't want to give you the graphic details, but basically they like dressing up in leather. And in particular, they like leather clothes that make them look like dogs. And they would literally live their lives as dogs. It is, it's, I'm not joking, this is serious. And these men are saying, now that gay people are having their day in the sun and they're being recognized as a legitimate pursuit of life, why can't we be recognized in the same way? Because this makes me happy. And the thing that they say that makes them happy about this is that play role-playing as a dog makes them reach into this primal part of them that bypasses their intellect, bypasses logic, and it just fulfills this base, primal desires inside of them. And so they said, let me pursue those desires just as you have allowed other people to. And the basics, the basis of what I'm trying to say is that our moral code cannot be dependent on how I feel. My moral code cannot be dependent on my desires. 
And this doesn't just reach into homosexuality. This reach into who you are as a person in your everyday life. You are guided by principles that must be beyond you. The Bible says that above all, the heart is deceitful. Why does it say that? Because our desires are weird and, and whack out and, 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 and they sometimes can, can short-circuit our ability to think and can short-circuit our ability to actually do life. And, and, and we don't know the consequences of what all these laws that are being passed today until maybe two generations down the road. And that's why I do fear when people start allowing their desires to be their moral standard, we've got a problem. But at the same time, I can understand it from a non-Christian point of view. If I don't believe that I was created by God, I don't believe that there's a standard outside of myself. I understand it. If you want to be an evolved monkey, go ahead. I live as a Christian who believed that every part of me was put together by a sovereign God who sits above everything, who, 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 who put me together before I was even born. And He's the one that gives me a meaning and a purpose. I don't know why you guys not excited about this because I am I know that I've got a meaning and purpose in my life why because I was created I wasn't evolved I wasn't just the product of uh, of the survival of the fittest because I know that I'm weak I know that there are problems inside of me and if I'm meant to be strong in order to survive I know I'll be one of those that are wiped out but I'm here because I have a meaning and a purpose that comes from a higher person, from, from, from a God who is separate from me. And at the same time, that means that there is a moral standard that comes from outside of me, sometimes a moral standard that I don't like, sometimes a moral standard that goes against my desires, sometimes a moral standard that seems to stop me from having some kinds of fun. But that is still a moral standard that is a good standard. It's a moral standard that makes sense. It's a moral standard that we need to abide by as Christians. But in saying that, we need to understand that as Christians, that's not the thing we wave around. I've got a moral standard. That's not how we are supposed to do things. And I love that in the Bible, when we spoke about the law, and we were talking specifically about the law last week in the Bible, and the, the law is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you've got these five books that are called the law. Now, if you go online and search for Australian law, I bet you that you will not find it a lot of fun to read any Australian law unless you happen to be a lawyer and like that kind of stuff. It, you would just see these lists of stipulations and do's and don'ts and consequences of all of that. But if you open your Bible to the first five books, to the law that the Jewish people abided by for, 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 for millennia, you would find this amazing interweaving of narrative, of history, of people, their cultural backgrounds and their journey. And in that, there are all these standards that God is placing, principles that He's putting in place. We have this intersection of people and principle. And I love that in Romans 12, verse 9 to 14, in my Bible, it gives us this little subtitle which says, Marks of a True Christian. 
Um, uh, this is what Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let's just stop there for a moment. Understand that love without standards is not love. Loving a person doesn't mean allowing them to do whatever they want. As a parent, I'm not a parent, but I look after all of you guys and it's a hard job as it is. And as a parent, you know that loving your child doesn't mean giving them everything that they want. There is a certain standard that you have to keep. There are certain standards that you say this is good and this is bad. That is still a judgment call that you have to make. Some people say Christians are not supposed to judge. Well, we're not supposed to judge. How do I know what cereal to have in the morning? There's still a judgment call that needs to be made in our lives. There's judgment in that I don't condemn you. There's a judgment in that I know I'm as much a sinner as you are. But the judgment of whether something is good or bad is something that us as Christians, we have to hold on to. We have to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. How do we know what is good? It is found in the Bible, a moral standard that is beyond us, that is outside of us, that we know because God has given to us. But that's not where it stops because it says, Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And if I may be honest, I believe that the church right now has been doing pretty well at abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. But maybe we're not so good at loving one another with brotherly affection and are doing one another in showing honor. Just because a person doesn't agree with me doesn't mean that I still cannot have, that I can't love the person and that I cannot honor the person. The person is still a human being. The pursuit of rights comes from the Bible where it says we've all been created equal by a heavenly God. Uh, there is no race, there is no gender, there is no age that separates uh, different classes of people. There's none of that stuff. And so there's still a seed of honor that every person can give to the people around him and what this shows me is the difficulty that all of us as Christians have because we have a standard that we have to uphold but we also have to love and honor people that don't hold on to the same standards as we hold on to we have to understand that the response to the homosexual argument lies in our ability to bring the, stand, uh, the, the, the holding up of standards, but also the holding up of people. And so this morning I have described the standards. I know I haven't gone into full detail, but I, I believe that most people here understand what I'm talking about. If you want a further uh, uh, discussion, I'm more than happy to meet up with you. But now I want to kind of show the other side of this, this, this thing that we have to do, this strategy on working with people. And, and when we work with people, we need to get into their shoes and understand their struggle. I, I did mention that I had the privilege, and I really do count it as a privilege, of working with a couple of young men that had a struggle with their uh, sexual identity. And, and I, I say it's a privilege because as I sat with them and tried to understand their journey, it literally broke my heart because the struggle that they're going through is real. Their experiences and their pain that they're going through is absolutely 100% real. And many times Christians respond out of the standard, but not out of understanding where these people are at. My question to you is, you might have some standards, but have you ever asked a person who's going through a struggle with their sexual identity and said, tell me your story? 
No judgment. Tell me your story. How many of us would dare to do that? I think many of us are scared because you're like, oh no, but then I'll have to tell them that there's a standard in the Bible and they're going to hate me. No, there's ways to do it. You can sit with the person and say, tell me your story. At the end of the day, I don't know. I think that we're going to have a different opinion on what the Bible says. But at least help me to understand what you're going through. If more Christians can do that, maybe what's going on in our world will not be such a, a difficulty. Only 2 to 3% of our population would identify as having a homosexual identity. 2 to 3%. The vast 98% of people living in Australia don't have that identity. And so if there are enough Christians that know how to love and to honor people that are having struggles with their sexual identity, I'm wondering if the, the, if the story is going to change. And that's what I'm trying to put forward. And so I want to uh, uh, give you something that I researched and learned a, a while back that really helped me to understand the struggle that uh, some people go through with their sexual identity. And when we think about homosexuality, we can think about this in three tiers. The first tier is this, sexual attraction. Uh, homosexual attraction. And, and th this is really strange, but research shows that the vast majority of human beings have had homosexual attractions. What does that mean? It means that you have had a thought one day at some point in your whole life where you went, someone of the same gender, hey, they're pretty cool. They, they look pretty good. And you were somewhat attracted. But the thing is that most of us, because we identify as a heterosexual human being, we erase that thought very quickly. And and we move on with our lives. So in that way, attractions are not actually sin. They are something that you cannot control. Just like when you go onto a lolly store and you see that beautiful lolly that you love, there's an attraction straight away. If you don't do anything, if you don't act on that attraction to that lolly, nothing happens. It is simply a thought that crossed into your mind and went out the other side. Following me so far? Now, if the second tier is this, is that you have a homosexual orientation. Now, if the attractions are strong and they're durable enough, you will experience a, an orientation. It's like if you're always being attracted to that way and the attraction stays there really strong, over time you're going to orientate yourself towards that attraction. Does that make sense? Now, again, this is probably where it really blew my mind because this person, this, this Christian psychologist was saying, don't see homosexual orientation as a sin. It is simply the sum of all their attractions. And if a person's attractions is not sin, why does, it, why does a constant attraction suddenly become a sin? It is something that the person cannot control. It is something that is not within uh, the will of a person to say, I can change this. It is simply something that they are experiencing. Sure, there might be some background, there might be some things that contribute to, that, uh, uh, to those attractions and therefore their orientation, but it's not our place to judge their past. We're simply called to work with people in their current experience. Does that make sense? It's only when we hit the third tier, which is called the homosexual identity, where this person is now choosing to act on those attractions and living out that lifestyle that we say that that person has chosen to live in sin. Now, I'm putting that out there very gently because the truth is that all of us at some point in our lives have followed certain attractions that are ungodly and acted on them. 
You know, we don't want to tell the truth because the truth is going to get us into trouble, and so we tell a lie. There was an attractiveness of the option to lie, and you follow through with that attractive desire, and then it, it produces sin in our lives. Does that make sense? It's like if a person, a, a teenager, goes to a school where everyone takes drugs, and therefore there's always this temptation of taking drugs, that kid, until he takes drugs, is not a druggie. Does that make sense? It is only when they start taking in those drugs, then that person has a problem with drugs. But at the same time, the, the, obviously, you know, I, I'm making it an analogy and it's not perfect, but I hope that you understand what I'm trying to say. A person with a homosexual identity has chosen to act on those attractions and then has walked into sin. Now, this is where it gets a bit of fun, I guess, because the reason why many people choose the homosexual identity is because of the community it allows them to engage with. The homosexual identity, identity gives them a tribe, if you will, of people that will come around them and therefore give them meaning and purpose in their lives. Now, when a person first says that they have a homosexual identity, what do we say in, 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 in common language? We say the person has come out, yeah? The reason why we say that is because there is this sense that this person has been hiding and it takes them a heck of a lot of courage to come out. And that's the language that the homosexual tribe has given to this experience and they are now given a meaning and a purpose behind the person coming out. So a person that is struggling with their homosexual uh, uh, attractions and their sexual identity as a whole is seeing that they are going to be celebrated as warriors by people of the homosexual tribe. Guess what they experience when they come to a church? The vast majority of them have this idea, mainly because of the media, that they're going to be rejected and condemned. Would you rather be welcome as a warrior or as a condemned person? Would you rather be accepted and loved or be cast aside as a weirdo, as an outlier, as a person who doesn't belong? What would you choose? And we find it so hard to see, why are you not choosing God? I sat with this person and my heart broke because he said to me this very question. He said, Nate, do you know by asking me to follow God, you're telling me I will never have an intimate relationship with another human being, that I will never be able to have a family. And I could see in his eyes the breaking of his heart when he said those things because his desire was to please God. But right now he needed someone to stand by him and say, I don't know exactly how things are going to work out. I don't have the answers for you, but right now I need you to know that I continue to love you. I continue to honor you because you're going through a struggle I could never imagine. But right now, if you choose God, I'm going to walk with you. If you happen to walk away from God, I believe that God is still faithful. I don't know how it works. I don't know if you're going to hell. I don't know any of those things. It is way beyond my pay grade. But I know one thing I can do is that I can continue to show you, brother, affection. I'm going to outdo you in showing honor. Well done for, for pressing on in this journey. And this poor guy, I don't know if this is the cause of it, but he had this stress on the inside of his body. He had stomach ulcers. He had all of these things that were 
wrecking his physical health because of a struggle that was going on inside of his mind and inside of his heart. And I, as a Christian, I have a choice to make. I know that I need to stand for certain standards, but I also need to choose to love. And in that moment, there's a collision of what is going on. So what I'm saying is that let us be a church that understands that the Bible is the primary way and the only way that we can ever understand a moral standard for living. But that doesn't stop us from loving people. That Facebook post that you're putting up about condemning this or condemning that, is it really doing any good? I'm sure you're standing for something, but what about that person in your life, in your influence circle that right now is feeling condemned? It's a tough question. Do I have answers? No. What happens if you want to get into politics and all that kind of stuff is a completely different conversation. But I think the vast majority of us have got people in our lives that are going through this struggle. And why I'm choosing to take this angle this morning is because I want to help you see practically when people are struggling in your life, you need to have this intersection of standard and principle as well as understanding the person's struggle. When we tell a person uh, that God is there and that God can change them, what, is, what are you actually thinking and what are they actually hearing? Do you know that? I, I do want to bring this up as one of the final uh, remarks for this morning, but the majority of people that have a homosexual orientation don't experience a 180-degree turnaround to be able to have healthy heterosexual relationships. The vast majority don't. And when you tell a person that God can change you, understand that you're not necessarily saying that, you are, that God's going to change their orientation. That God's not necessarily going to change their desires. He can, and in some situations He does, but for some reason, the vast majority of people have to contend with these attractions and desires for the rest of their lives. But the change that is important is that they are going to find their identity rooted in Christ and not rooted in their desires. But if we can zoom out for a moment, this doesn't just affect people with a homosexual identity. This affects each one of us. Is your identity rooted in Christ or rooted in your desires? Young person, as a single person, are you going, until I find my perfect soulmate, I'm not whole? That is an identity that is rooted in desires and not rooted in Christ. I'm not good enough to uh, take on that position, that role, because uh, I need to go through this experience and this uh, uh, studies and all of that. That is an identity rooted in your experience and your desires rather than being rooted in Christ. You get what I mean? And as Christians, our primary job is not to condemn people. In fact, most people, the ones that I sat with, as much as they had researched and they were a bit confused about what the standard of the Bible is, there was something deep down on the inside of them that they knew that they knew that they knew. That any way of allowing the Bible to allow homosexuality, sexuality, uh, homosexuality was a creative reading of the Bible. They knew that. They didn't really need me to shove that standard in their face. But the more important thing for these couple of guys that I had the privilege of walking with was knowing whether I would still love them no matter what. 
was I had the distinct privilege of representing Christ in their lives. I'm hoping that I'm bringing this home in a way that I don't even know if I can represent this right, but in that moment, these guys were, were hoping for a saviour that was willing to look past the stuff that was going wrong in their lives. They were hoping for a saviour who would accept them, no matter how downtrodden, no matter how disgusting they knew that the internal world was. And in that moment, I represented Christ to them. And I could hold up a standard, a standard that I could never live, a standard of the Bible that was so high that Jesus Christ had to be my substitute. He had to take the wrath of God on himself to set me free. And because I couldn't hold up that standard, maybe there's something in me that could just stand with this person and help them to realize that God is not looking for them to do right, but for asking them to, to, to come into relationship with him. I hope that this is making sense. I don't know if this is answering all the questions that you have, but I, I just want to put forward corporately as a church. We stand in a very pivotal position in history. Christianity is no longer in vogue in our country. And, and we need to have a unified voice, a unified voice that doesn't have weird people going around with placards saying, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, uh, standing in front of parliament and condemning the rest of humanity. We need Christians who are willing to stand in the gap and really just bridge the gap and represent Christ to such people because they're not going to be in here. I can talk like that because I'm almost sure that there are very, very few people struggling with that because being in church is the last place they want to be. Being in church represents condemnation and judgment to so many people who are struggling. The number of non-Christians I've heard, you want me to come into church? You better not do because God's going to send down lightning and your whole building's going to fall apart. That is literally Literally what people say. They're not going to be in here. But you can go into their world and you can go into their lives and you can make a difference by representing Christ to them just as Christ came to earth, bridged the gap between God and me and brought me salvation. You can represent Christ and say even though there are things that are not right in your life, just as I don't have things that are right in my life, God still loves me and God still loves you. Yes, there are certain standards to living, but I'm willing to journey with you on your journey. I don't know how long it's going to take, but know this, that God loves you. So what happens when people want to get into arguments and all of that? Well, just say I'm not into arguments. It's never going to represent me, right? You're trying to catch me. I have standards. You understand those standards. But I want you to know God loves you and I love you. Let's go out for lunch. Can we do that? Can we look past our insecurities and trying to protect God? God's not some idol that can't do stuff. God's God. <laughs> That's something that I'm learning in my walk. And planting a church, I was like, yeah, I've done campus pastoring. I've grown it. I've seen people come to Christ. I can plant a church. You know, I planted a church and things don't happen the way that I thought it would. And then I realized how much I needed God. <laughs> None of us can do life without God. So why do we need to protect God? There's certain standards that, yeah, we want to hold and there are certain rights that we as in that sense a religion need to fight for 
Like if a person wants to catch me out and ask me to conduct a gay marriage, a gay wedding, that's going to be difficult for me. I don't know what's going to happen. And therefore you guys need to fight for me in those situations. <laughs> but the truth is that we probably won't get to those worst case scenarios. And if we live by worst case scenarios, we stop loving the person. We stop bridging the gap between us and people. And that's what's going to bring transformation. You will never change a person's life, but God can. Yes. And what does change look like? Leave it up to God. Some people, 180 degree turns. But for many of us, it's a gradual change, isn't it? How many of you would say, I received Jesus one day, the next day I was a saint? <laughs> no one? So why are we expecting that of people? One of the guys I walked with, he went, he literally said, I've counted, I've been to 20 or so healing ministries to get rid of the struggle. Hope that just sinks in the desperation that people have in finding healing with God when they don't realize that healing doesn't mean a complete change in sainthood. It's just walking with Christ in the everyday. Why are we demonizing people with attractions that they don't seem to be able to control? I know it's tough. I know it's different. I don't know if you're going to walk out of this church and go, this guy's weird, never coming back here. But if we would be able to stand for our standards, but also stand with people, I believe things are going to change. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.